Welcome to Attorney Heart, the podcast focused on bringing awareness to and promoting attorney well-being. Join Attorney Heart as you embark on a journey to improve the quality of your professional and personal life. And now, here's your host, Fernando Flores. Looking up, there's always sky. Rest your head, I'll take you high. We won't fade into darkness. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Attorney Heart. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And today, I have a very special guest, Monica Langarica. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited about talking about the work that you do and your background. And just to give folks a little bit of a sense, uh, Monica is a staff attorney with the American Bar Association's Immigration Justice Project, specifically with the National Qualified Representative Program. And Monica attended the University of Southern California as a Gates Millennial Scholar, and she graduated from UC Berkeley School of Law. She also has experience in immigration and criminal law. Monica, did I get that correct? Yeah, it's impressive. Well, uh, it's my duty and job to the guests. <laughs> so um, thank you, Monica, for coming on. And I wanted to start out with, uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to enter the legal profession and become an attorney? And I leave that open to you. You can start anywhere you want. Yeah, definitely. Um, I haven't answered that question in a long time, but I, I grew up um, in a like single mother-headed household in Southeast San Diego. It's it's kind of a, a struggling hood, um, and I, you know my community and my family was really affected by these legal systems and processes that um, it didn't have the resources to navigate properly, um, <clears throat> and you know I like got access to higher education. I, I went to college on a scholarship. And my older sister went to school as well, but I was really the first one in my family to have access to like choosing which school I was gonna go to and going far away um, and not having to worry about how I was gonna pay for it. Um, and then once I got to college, I like my mind was blown. It was totally opened um, by all these possibilities of, of sort of um, how we could choose to participate in conversations about justice, um, and uh, you know, I took a class. Um, it was like my first year of college, and, and my professor brought an attorney who was working on environmental justice issues. Um, and he was a lawyer, and he was brilliant, and he really talked about like really creative ways to uh, use the legal legal processes to bring about justice for underserved communities. And um, and that kind of opened it up for me. It was May Day, I remember, when that speaker came. It was right before finals. Um, and I called my sister and I told her, I think I'm going to go to law school. Um, and I created a pipeline, and, and, and here we are many years later. That's awesome. It's so awesome how, like, this one uh, presentation by this one person and, you know, who provided you the right words at the right time in your life just had that impact, right, and sent you on a very – uh, different course maybe than you would have had you not heard of it, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now at the American Bar Association. And I want to make sure, so is it senior, uh, is it senior staff attorney? Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Because I, I know I mentioned earlier staff attorney, but I also saw somewhere else it was senior staff attorney. So I want to, you know, give credit where it's due. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's a two-year step journey. Uh-huh. Cool. So tell me a little bit about what you do at the American Bar Association um, so that our listeners know. Yeah, so, um, you know, San Diego is, is a, and we start with this context, San Diego is, is, a, is a little bit of a bizarre place um, in that we're on the border. Um, we're at the busiest land border crossing in the Western Hemisphere. That's the San Diego Port of Entry. Um, and, you know, our county is overwhelmingly conservative and Republican. Um, we vote that way. Um, our Board of Supervisors is at the moment 100% conservative. Um, and so it, it's oftentimes when folks think about California, they think about like LA and they think about the Bay Area, um, especially in like the immigrant rights community, right? We think about these like really great policies um, and the resources that exist in these places. And San Diego really stands apart from that. Um, in that there isn't robust legal services, there are not, like, there isn't access to pro bono services, and there's definitely not any kind of, like, county-funded access to justice for immigrants. Um, so with the IJP, which is what we call ourselves for short, it's a project of the, of the American Bar Association's Commission on Immigration. And the IJP is, it's like, one of its direct services projects. Um, Ten years ago, it was founded because a judge at the federal level was seeing and being inundated with all of these pro se, right, that's what we call people who represent themselves in, in immigration court, all these pro se appeals that were getting up to the federal court level. That means they were going through the immigration court level, the, the Board of Immigration Appeals, and then we're still appealing to the federal court level, and that judge saw, you know, if these people had access to counsel at an earlier stage, right, these issues would be resolved far, far earlier, and it would be at a much lower cost to the government, and, and a a different cost of detention to the to their respondent or to the person who's detained, um, and so they founded this this project ten years ago, mostly to provide pro bono representation to people who were not represented here at the Otay Mesa Detention Center. Um, and it's it's evolved a little bit over time. So um, right now we operate two major programs. One is the legal orientation program, where we provide services to the entire unrepresented population. Um, of detainees at the Otay Mesa Detention wow. Center. Um, yeah, so the unrepresented population is close to 80% of the people who are detained there and are going through the immigration court process. Um, and, and that orientation consists of, you know, teaching them, like, everything from this is what court looks like, this is where you will sit, because a lot of these, because, because we're at the, you know, at the border crossing, we do have a lot of people who are picked up on the interior who are longtime members of our community. But we also have a lot of asylum seekers who are presenting themselves at the border, doing everything that the law requires of them to ask for asylum, and then are being subject to detention and don't, didn't know that that's what they were facing, right? So it starts with really basic education about what this process is going to look like, and then it gets really um, individualized and specific and goes into like eligibility for relief from deportation and how to make an asylum claim, which is incredibly, like, notoriously complex. Um, and, and then through the legal orientation program, we sometimes we seek to pair pro se people who don't have access to attorneys with volunteer attorneys um, who we train and mentor. Or sometimes we take those cases in house if we say we've got to take this case. Um, and that's really challenging because that program, you know, the, the orientation part, the, the teaching people about the process, that's funded. But the, the pro bono representation part is wholly unfunded. Um, so this is something that we do because it's impossible to have access and, and knowledge about these people who are going up against the most notoriously complex legal system 
arguably in the country, right? It's like compared to the tax, the immigration laws are compared to the tax code mm-hmm. um, and the tax court without the assistance of attorney. So it's really hard to have access to these folks and to not be able to do something. Um, so that's one part of our, of our project. And the other part of our project, our, our second funded program is the National Qualified Representative Program or a mental health program. Um, where we provide court-appointed representation to individuals who have been deemed mentally incompetent by an immigration judge to represent themselves. Mm. So for attorneys out there, like you know that access to counsel is not guaranteed at the government's expense in the context of immigration proceedings, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, this is like really exciting. It's, it's the result of an injunction that was it's a result of litigation that really finalized in 2013 um, here or in the Central District of California um, that applies to all um, to Arizona, Arizona, Washington, and California. Um, so people in those states who are found incompetent um, are entitled to counsel at the government's expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the government, in anticipation of this, of like lawsuits like this coming up across the country, they just rolled out. Um, a national program for representation for folks who are deemed incompetent, even though it's not binding in other states mm-hmm. um, or in other districts. Um, so, th- so that's the program. That program is like my baby. That's the one that I manage. Um, I supervise all the attorneys, and I have a, a pretty heavy caseload of folks um, who fall into that class. Okay. Um, and that class of people is particularly uh, unpopular. <laughs> a lot of times, people with with issues of incompetence present. With pretty complex um, criminal and immigration histories, um, and also again with varying levels of incompetence, right? So we have folks with like anxiety um, and maybe paranoia, to folks with like permanent psychosis who just exist in a permanent delusion. Um, and yeah, so that's 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 the work that we do, and that's I focus on the mental health program, but I'm also as the senior attorney in the office, I provide um, legal and, and technical like assistance to both programs. Got it. And so focusing specifically on the the mental health program, that's the National Qualified Representative Program. That's the one that you said, that's that's your baby, right? That's your project. Um, You know, do you also tend to work with other uh, mental health professionals to make determinations as to, you know, who qualifies for what specific, um, you know, uh, mental disorder or mental illness? Or how does that how does that work? How does that process work, Monica? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the designation of the Franco class, the, the the settlement is called Franco, and the permanent injunction is called Franco Gonzalez Holder. Um, and so to be a Franco class member, that designation is made in court prior to, to us being appointed. Okay. So we're not able to work with the court or with professionals in in designating people Franco respondents. But we work really closely with mental health professionals after we're appointed to generate psychological evaluations, to have them inform us, you know, to have them basically help us inform the court about why this person either shouldn't be forced to go through deportation proceedings, right, because their level of incompetence is so great, or why they shouldn't be deported, right, in in support of like a protection-based claim, so asylum, withholding, or protection under the Convention Against Torture, often um, often the protective ground for these folks is like if they're sent back to their country of origin, they're going to be subject to persecution or torture because of their mental illness, because they're going to be forced to be sent back to countries where there is no protection for people like them, and those people are 
subject to like indefinite confinement and torture at these like horrible mental institutions. So we'll work with mental health professionals here to help us make our case to the judge basically. Um, and then often we have to work with them just to figure out what's going on with our clients. Like like our, the varying degrees of incompetence are, can be shocking. Um, especially for an attorney who doesn't have training in this, right? So you can go in one day and and your client is like all about it and like is cool and wants to talk. Um, and then you can, I've, I've, it's happened to me where it goes the next day and it's right before a hearing and the client looks at me and says, who the hell are you? Wow. Um, why are you here? I've never met you before. Um, and so sometimes we also just work with the, with the mental health professionals in a really practical way to say like, is this a delusion? Um, it's, you know, does he need to be medicated? Uh, you know, is, is this, what's going on here? And they're, they're able to break it down for us really well. Um, that's a, such a powerful representation that you're doing there, but also sounds very challenging in, in some situations at least. Yeah. It's very challenging. <laughs> um, and, and Monica, I wanted to get into a particular, uh, uh, just recent policy that was implemented by the federal government uh, relating to the zero tolerance policy. And, and I want to, first of all, thank you for uh, explaining a lot of the background. I'm myself, I've, I've mentioned it in, you know, other podcasts that I've had with uh, different attorneys. I don't have the immigration background. And so I appreciate you just explaining, you know, in detail what these different settlements are and everything. So that we can get a full understanding of, of what it's about. So I appreciate that. But um, how, for example, has the zero tolerance policy that's been implemented by the federal government affected um, the NQRP program and in terms of the work that you're doing or, or has it, right? Um, if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, I guess what I, so there's a lot, there are a lot of things going on. There's a zero tolerance policy, there's family, forcible family separation at the border. Um, you know, there's obviously that executive order that purports to reunite families, but really subjects families to indefinite detention. And then yesterday, a, a really fabulous injunction came down out of a district court here in San Diego. Um, and we can talk about that in a second if we want to. But um, I'm really glad you bring up this zero tolerance prosecution issue, because oftentimes San Diego doesn't quite fit into folks the conceptualization of the border, right? We, when, when people think about immigration and the border, they think about Texas and Arizona. Um, and the children kind of like, you know, the children detention centers and the family detention centers that we know of um, all too well. And, and it's really important that that be a part of the narrative. Um, San Diego is a bit different because, right, first of all, we have a wall um, and that we've been having a wall. Right. Um, and we have, again, that busiest land border crossing um, in the world. And, and one of the things that the land border crossing one of the purposes that it serves is that it's it's where folks are supposed to present themselves to request asylum, right? So you, you present at a port of entry and you express fear and then international domestic law requires that the government abide by this long process that, that permits people to, to make their claim for fear and to be able to, to remain in the United States. Um, one of the things that we've seen over the past, like, I guess when, when was January 20... 17, that's when Trump came into office. Um, one of the things that we've seen over the last like, year and a half right, is like an overwhelming number of turnbacks at the border. So it's people who come to the border and they say, I have fear, I'm requesting asylum. In the case of somebody that I helped um, who won asylum since then, she was 
forcibly and violently turned back three times. Wow. Um, so she was actually beat by uh, either a border patrol agent or a security guard that border patrol or CBP contracts with um, called Paragon. Like she's a trans woman um, and on the third time that she was rejected at the port of entry, she was pushed onto the ground um, and stepped on on her neck and in her general area um, wow. by a, 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 like a heavy boot. Um, and so th these are stories, because of our proximity and, and access to these unrepresented folks, these are stories that we hear all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and we've heard of CBP telling people that asylum doesn't exist anymore, that Trump doesn't believe in asylum, which is really outrageous things, right, that we're seeing as a result of kind of like emboldened, some might say rogue, and some might say not rogue, but emboldened CBP officers. Um, and, and that presents this whole issue of, then right people, if people are fearing for their lives and they're trying to flee their countries of origin and they're trying to do things the right way and they're turned away, sometimes out of desperation and sometimes out of ignorance, people then end up, right, like being left with no choice but to come in through the hills or what we know as iwi, like entry without inspection. Mm. Um, and so it, there are multiple levels to this, like this government has created many dilemmas. Um, and so one of the dilemmas is, we're being flooded with these people coming across the border um, without permission, right? And so we have to answer this. We have to create a solution to this. And, and this government solution is a zero tolerance policy, which is again a solution that it created, to, a solution that it came up with to a problem that it devised. Um, so the zero tolerance policy says that anybody crossing without permission is going to be subject to to prosecution. Um, now, historically, what we've seen federal prosecutions for overwhelmingly are for illegal reentry, so that's 1326, mm -hmm. um, and then like drug-related, right, drug smuggling, um, trafficking type of thing. What they started doing now is prosecuting people for illegal entry, so it's 1325, no prior deportation order necessary, no prior criminal contact in the U.S. necessary. If you're caught entering without permission, um, you know that people are being subject to to prosecution there's all sorts of problems that that poses because there's requirements for for meeting the elements of that crime which is like an intent to actually flee prosecution so you're not supposed to be prosecuted if you upon crossing present yourself to a border patrol agent which is what a lot of people do and say you know i have fear and i want to request asylum those folks aren't supposed to prosecute and we are seeing that those people are being prosecuted again as a part of this like zero tolerance policy um but rather than stay in and fight their case, which can subject them to like criminal imprisonment for an extended period of time, a lot of these people are being um, incentivized to plea out, right? And to plead to 1325, um, get credit for time served, and then be transferred to deportation proceedings. Um, all that's to say, that were our, the NQRP appointments um, and us seeing people on the immigration like enforcement side of this is kind of on the tail end mm -hmm. of the prosecutions, right? So the prosecutions happen first, and then they go through all these processes, and then um, you know if they do decide to stay, they'll get transferred to ICE custody, and then they'll have to wait for their first immigration court hearing, which can take over a month, um, and then at their first, second, third, maybe tenth hearing, then they would be designated a Franco class member. Mm. So we haven't, as a part of the Franco or the NQRP program, we haven't yet seen how this is playing out and how this is affecting our clients because we, we frankly aren't there yet at the timeline, on the timeline. Got it. Um, 
but you know it, it there's also there's just so many issues with with like immigration judges um not necessarily understanding so if somebody is found incompetent in the criminal context um you know to go through trial blah 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 um that often doesn't often the judge will say well i appointed him an attorney um so that's the ultimate safeguard so there isn't like a big understanding, a great understanding of how incompetence can render someone not prosecutable in the criminal context, right? If someone's found incompetent in the criminal context, that person can't be prosecuted, right? And and so proceedings against them are dismissed. But in the immigration court context, often the way that it rolls out is that the immigration judge will say, well, he has an attorney now, so he has to go through his deportation proceedings, even where the level of incompetence is so grave um, that they can't help us in their defense. And a question on that, you know, just uh, focusing on the two codes that you mentioned, the 1325 and the 1326, I mean, are, are those in the context of immigration, are they uh, a misdemeanor, felonies? Can you just mention just really quickly what, uh, what those classify as? Yeah, 1325, especially as it's being prosecuted now, is, is a misdemeanor. Okay. I think 1326 can be both. Uh, but what we're seeing right now overwhelmingly I mean, almost exclusively, is the misdemeanor thirteen twenty five um, prosecutions. Okay. And and as, and I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Operation Streamline, um, but that's coming, you know, back to San Diego. I think it's expected to roll out on Monday. Not back to San Diego. Sorry, it's coming to San Diego for the first time. Um, Operation Streamline, essentially everything that I just mentioned about the zero tolerance prosecutions. It does all of that, and on top of that. It basically seeks to um, have uh, have arraignment, conviction, and sentencing in the same like several hours in one courtroom. Um, so it just utterly guts due process, and it's done. Sorry, in people are are prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced in groups um, wow. by one judge in a matter of hours. You'll be in with no convictions, and you'll come out with a sentence for, for your conviction um, at your first appearance. And so this is something that wholly just like guts due process um, and, and incentivizes pleas, right? Even where like maybe the government wouldn't be able to prove the elements of the crime before a jury. Um, and so that's expected to start on Monday. Let me ask you a question about that, about due process. What, how should, due process look in the context of these immigration proceedings just to get a sense of that as well monica yeah i mean well so there's the the, the criminal the criminal federal criminal proceedings right which mm -hmm. is where people are being prosecuted for the 1325 and 1326 and then there's the immigration proceedings right in the criminal proceedings you know it should operate like any other criminal proceeding right where you have the right to counsel you have protections under the fourth fifth and sixth amendment um including the right to trial before a jury of your peers, right? Um, and you should, be sub you should be permitted to post bail, to fight your case on the outside. A lot of that is already really un like in question, right? In, in, in the context of these zero tolerance prosecutions because people are incentivized to plead out. Um, people aren't incentivized to, to fight their cases and go to trial um, because oftentimes, so a lot of what's happening here too is we'll see people being sent to um, like a, a federal criminal detention center out in Orange County or El Central, and the attorney is here in San Diego. And so that's like two to three hours away. Um, the person doesn't really have like a lot of contact with their attorney. Um, 
they just want to get out and fight their immigration case, right? They just want to say, like, I need to prove to you why I deserve asylum or why I came here or why I'm going to be killed if I go back to my country. Um, but a lot of the, the way that this is, like, playing out doesn't really give people the, like, not just empowerment, but the um, the confidence in this legal system to, to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to wait it out and I'm going to fight it out here in, in criminal custody because they know that ultimately they're going to get up, end up getting transferred to immigration custody right away. Mm. Um, so it should operate the way that all of criminal proceedings operate in this country because we know that due process in criminal proceedings applies to all people, not just U.S. citizens, all persons. Um, and then in the immigration court context, it's just a whole different, there is the concept of due process. We often have to like brief the judges on why it applies, which is like, I mean, to people who believe in justice should really like shock us, right? One time I had to brief the Fifth Amendment to a judge because he didn't wow. understand why I was raising a Fifth Amendment objection. And I won that case. That client's now a green card holder. Mm. Um, but that, that's somebody who was otherwise being forced to admit to a crime that not only subject him to criminal prosecution, but was also going to bar him from all relief for eligibility. Um, so they just, it, in, in immigration court, there's this understanding that the context of due process is applicable, but a lot of things are not, like the federal rules of evidence are not applicable, um, or they're, they're loosely relevant, is how they say it. Um, and so we often have to really, really fight for like really basic protection. I see. Wow, thanks for that, Monica. I mean, it's really, uh, really thorough. And I, I appreciate just, you know, learning a little bit about how that process works. And I'm sure, you know, our listeners who, who may be interested in potentially providing support or getting involved um, in, in, in this area of law, I know will benefit from listening to the context and background that you're providing. And one question I have is, you know, if somebody did want to get involved and if somebody did want to uh, uh, represent or uh, become learned in these areas of law and these both substantive and procedural issues, um, you know, it sounds like, like your program is one source of, uh, of information and also support that can be provided. But can you tell us a little bit about if somebody just, okay, like me, I've never done, you know, immigration law and I wanted to get involved. Uh, what would that process look like for me and how could I get involved? Yeah. So um, one thing, you know, we've gotten really thankfully like a, a kind of an outpour of support um, mm -hmm. from folks. And so one of the things that we, we designed is kind of like this survey um, so if people email me, which I'm sure you'll, you'll share that email. Um, uh, I can respond with, with a, a survey, um, which just kind of like assesses people's like language competence, any, any experience, any in immigration or in court proceedings. Um, and then what we're doing is we're, we're hosting like different trainings for attorneys who want to get involved and, and take on pro bono cases. Um, everything from just like a bond hearing to a full fledged asylum hearing. Um, and so that's forthcoming, and, and this survey is kind of helping us like fit people in, or design the trainings to, to meet the needs of people. So I can share that survey with people if they want to sign up. And then the other thing that we're sharing along with that survey is really just like a donate button. Um, one of the things that, that we're all up against, right, is, is capacity issues. I mean, everybody in this office could successfully, all the attorneys in this office could successfully represent a lot of these people because they have strong cases and also because we're great attorneys, right? But we don't have the capacity um, to meet the need. And so it's like a really basic thing. 
Um, but to the extent that folks can, they, they should donate to these orgs that they know are doing the work on the ground. Mm, awesome. And one of the things, I just if I can make one final pitch, like one of the things yeah. that, that we've I've been trying to communicate with people is, is one, this idea that, that San Diego is a really important, important part of this border narrative because of the prosecutions that are happening here, because of a problem devised at the border um, intentionally by the administration. And the second thing is, is that, you know, forcible family separation is vile and it's violent and, it, and it's really triggering for, for people, right? As, as we mentioned at the start of this call. Um, but all immigration detention is family separation, right? And, and it's arguably forcible family separation. When people are ripped from their homes, um, are stopped on the freeway on their way to work and go into a detention center never to see their family again or to see them again in two years. Um, or when people present at the border thinking they're going to be able to seek asylum and instead are, you know, subject to detention and, and not being able to make contact with people on the outside, that's all family separation. And, and that's something that's a, a, a travesty that's existed in this country for a really long time um, that we're really trying to fight, like, thoughtfully and effectively here. And I think that, that we've been fighting pretty successfully for a while. You know, in, in, in getting into that in a little more detail uh, in relation to the, the family separations, and now what you're mentioning as uh, the, the potential indefinite family detentions. Now moving to family reunification, you mentioned that there was a recent order. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that entails? Yeah, um, a federal judge here issued a, uh, an excellent decision in a case that the ACLU brought um, suing the government because of this family separation. So basically a judge ordered that um, family separation must stop, must cease, which arguably did when, you know, 45 signed that order. Um, but that also importantly, um, that all families who've been separated must be reunified within 14 to 30 days, depending on the age of the child. Um, so they've got kind of this 30 day deadline on reunifying families. Um, and the Vera Institute of Justice, which is kind of a, a pretty big, um, organization and um, they hold a lot of funds from the government they've just launched this like family this morning this this family reunification kind of center um mm -hmm. that's going to operate like as a clearinghouse um just to, to actually like connect the information one of the things that one of the problems that this government has created for itself is that <clears throat> yes even if they can which they say they can know how to locate different family members there's like an issue with actually the process of reunifying them and what that's going to look like. Um, and I think Vera is going to help to operate some of that, um, which is great. Um, but again, you know, one of the things that we cannot stop, we can't say enough is that family detention is not a solution to family separation. Um, and so I know there's talks right now about, you know, military bases here in San Diego Camp Pendleton, which is a big Marine base, being turned into, you know, these shelters for families. Um, one of the things that that we have to be really mindful of is is kind of celebrating with the appropriate analysis, right? Like this is good. We want families to be reunified, but we want families to be unified and free, not unified and detained. Got it. I appreciate that. I appreciate your perspective and just putting out different resources and ways that that folks can get involved and you know very recent you know resources. So I, I appreciate that and. One question that I have for you in terms of maintaining balance, you know, as an advocate who is dealing with a lot of clients who have gone through emotional, heavy emotional trauma, right? I definitely discussed this with other guests on the show in terms of 
us absorbing that secondary emotional trauma, you know, what are things that you try to do to maintain balance and, and um, make sure that you're, you're continuing to advocate, you know, for, for a long period of time, Monica? Yeah. Um, that's a, always kind of a challenge for me. I, I, I have the, the, so there's like secondary trauma and then there's like having your own trauma triggered. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've experienced trauma, I experienced trauma as a child. Um, and a lot of times I'll be super frank and say that a lot of times my work or sometimes my work with my clients can trigger my own trauma in addition yeah. to the added layer of like absorbing secondary trauma. Um, and that's a great challenge. Uh, I, I don't really have an answer for that. I think I know, I know during my lifetime, I've learned a lot of techniques um, about like removing myself from, from situations that are not productive or that are triggering um, about saying, you know, about reminding myself and my clients that this moment will pass. Um, this moment will pass and you'll return to the peace that you felt before this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sometimes I say that out loud to my clients and I'm really saying it to myself. Mm. Um, and so those techniques, I try to share them with my clients. Um, but it's really hard. Uh, but I, I think that the difficulty that it creates for me is also a function of like my effectiveness as an advocate. Yeah. Um, because I, I have experience with, with my own mental health issues, with my family's very deep mental health issues. I have a sister, um, who, who's an addict, she's a recovering addict. Um, and all of these issues, I mean, we carry this. I, I carry this every day. And it's a part of, I didn't carry it proudly, it's part of my experience. Um, and it allows me, I think, to understand and connect with my clients in a very meaningful way. Um, you know, where, where it's permitted or where I've asked for permission, I, I try to make like just physical contact with my clients every time I see them in because they're locked up in a detention center where they're dehumanized on a minutely basis and and I whether it's like holding their shoulder or shaking their hands or whatever it is I, I really try to remind them that they're they're humans and I see them um and and I mean that I've learned that as a part of my own experience and so I, I you know I, I know that that's really important to my clients um but it's also what makes it really hard for me um, and so I, I try to remove myself from situations sometimes, you know, I've had clients just like cut me out for like five minutes and I'm in there and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not your punching bag. So <laughs> I'm going to, I hope you have a better day tomorrow and I'm going to come back to see you. You know, you, you haven't like jeopardized your relationship with me, but I'm going to come back on another day. Um, yeah. and I leave and it's always pretty hard for me to leave, but I do. Um, and I do come back. Um, and then on those days, I try to take, go for long runs, um, I eat delicious things. I, sometimes I like autopilot when I'm driving and I just like auto drive to my sister's house to see my nephews mm. um, and I play. <laughs> um, yeah. And I invest a lot in my, in my personal relationship with my partner. Awesome. Well, I, I, I know in doing the work that I've been doing and talking to a lot of attorneys about what their journeys are. Um, you know, we're all in, in, in very different places in our own journey, you know, and I think what I've learned to do is just accept where I am right now and know that I can always take a step to make, uh, you know, improve my wellness, you know, take a step towards improving my wellness, right? And um, it's, you're right, it's not easy. And I, I've connected with folks who've mentioned, yeah, you know, I, I, I do these things throughout, throughout the day and they have a plan and everything, 
you know, that's how I maintain my wellness. And I've connected with folks, you know, who are in it and just really grinding day to day, similar to yourself, very busy. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a challenge. So I, I appreciate your candor and your vulnerability. You just, uh, really opening up your attorney heart and, you know, letting us know kind of um, who you are, one, as a human and, and the challenges that you experience, but also, you know, as an advocate, you know, and, and what those challenges are and how it is, is difficult to, to be an effective attorney, you know, and which you are. And so I want to ask you also for folks who are coming into the profession, folks who are starting out and are, you know, um, interested in this work, uh, what advice do you have for them? Um, to do the work that moves your heart. I think it sounds like it's super cheesy and, um, it doesn't, I don't think it, like, if you're not there, I don't think it means a lot. Um, but I came out of law school and I thought I knew I wanted to be a public defender. I, like I, and I trained in law school to be a public defender in the criminal context. Um, and I, I got a job at a public defender's office and I, and I tried it out um, and it didn't move my heart. I felt like I was a part of a broken machine and I was moving people through that broken machine. Um, and I knew, you know, I thought I had it figured out and I thought I had a plan and that, that wasn't the plan that worked for me. Um, and, and so I, I figured something else out and I, I really gravitated towards the work that moves my heart. Um, and I work really long days. I feel like I earn my paycheck. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not working at a law firm and I don't make a law firm salary, <clears throat> but I don't think there's anything that compares to the satisfaction that I feel um, when, you know, my clients like come in and bring me an Armenian feast because I won their case and they get to stay. Um, or when I lose a case, you know, because the crimes are so bad, um, you know, and a client has to stay detained and they say no one has ever fought for me like that before. Mm. Um, there's, there's nothing, <clears throat> there's nothing like it. And, and I think if you're an attorney, regardless of what kind of work you're doing, you're probably going to make a salary um, that's going to get you, that's going to pay your rent or your mortgage. I bought a house recently, like, you know, um, but and so I think I, I say that like with a caveat that like we're probably all like fine if, if you're an attorney um, in that really practical way. But but do what moves your heart. And if something doesn't move your heart, change it. Um, and also, if you're graduating from law school and you don't pass the bar the first time, it's going to be fine. I'm trying to say that as much as possible to as many people as possible, because when I didn't pass the bar before I found out my bar results, um, I didn't know anybody who hadn't passed the bar because nobody came out and said it. And then after I found out I didn't pass the bar, people came out of the woodwork like, I didn't pass it either, and I didn't pass it either. And <laughs> it would have been really helpful to know that beforehand, to know that everything was going to be fine. Um, I, I passed the bar on the third time. It was extraordinarily challenging to get up, to lose twice, and to get up and go back at it. Um, but I did, and I passed, and everything, no, nothing about my journey would be the same if I hadn't gone through that. So trust in your process, and if you don't pass the bar, it's going to be fine. Definitely. I appreciate those uh, tips, uh, Monica. And also to put in a plug, you know, for folks that don't know, I also have the, a, a book that I put out, Passing the California Bar. It's on cal passingthecaliforniabar.com, or it's from the perspective of someone who is a repeat bar taker as well. You know, I passed it on the second time, you know. 
and you're right that that is that was my experience that's been my experience it's like oh you know i also have to take it again so um i appreciate you sharing that so one more question you know if folks wanted to reach out to you and get involved can you just uh you know mention your your contact email where where they can potentially reach out to you and also the survey information i'll also make sure to include it in the show notes of the podcast Great. Yeah, so my email is, it's not easy. It's Monica with a K, so M-O-N-I-K-A dot Langarica, L-A-N-G-A-R-I-C-A, at uh, gmail.com. Okay. okay, and then you said there was a survey, and they could just email you if they want to get the survey uh, to potentially get involved? Yeah, I, I can send that, that survey, or I can pass it to Fernando if you want to make it available. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely will share that. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're incredibly busy, so I really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, you being on the attorney hard and joining me for this next episode. Um, and I wish you the best of luck and, and you know, and you continuing to, to fight the fight. And um, yeah, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for all the work that you're doing too. Definitely. All right, Monica, take care and catch you on the next one. Uh, thank you everyone for listening in. Really appreciate you. And I look forward to connecting with you on the, on the next Attorney Heart episode. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, before you go, I wanted to personally invite you to the I Matter Now 2018 conference. It's coming up August 18, 2018. It's going to be on a Saturday. It's one day of just awesome speakers related to everything from your health. How can you improve your health? We're gonna have awesome doctors, uh, naturopathic doctors, who focus on making sure that holistically you are well and that you are fostering wellness in your life. Uh, they're gonna bring some really great strategies and tips for you to consider. Um, we're gonna have entrepreneurs who have built their wealth in real estate so that if you have you know, certain money set aside and you're trying to figure out how do I grow this, how do I make it, you know, uh, how, do, how do I make it uh, more, right? Um, you can definitely figure out different ways to do that. And we're going to have also uh, attorneys who are going to talk about productivity and making sure that you are taking care of yourself throughout the day and how that directly impacts your ability to be productive throughout the day. And also how you can potentially build your legacy. And um, our speakers are just going to be really, really great. And I hope that you make time on Saturday, August 18th to join us in San Francisco at the Hyatt Regency. And I look forward to meeting up with you then. Thank you again for listening in to Attorney Heart. And I, again, if you have any questions about the conference or to register, just go to uh, imatternowconference.eventbrite.com. Again, imatternowconference.eventbrite.com. Imatternow is I-M-A-T-E-R. N-O-W conference.eventbrite.com. All right. Thank you so much. Catch you at the next one. Bye. Hi, everyone. Fernando here again to thank you for listening in to another Attorney Heart episode. If you like this episode, please make sure to give it a thumbs up. And if it can benefit anyone that you know, please share it. Attorney Heart is brought to you by iMatterNow. I-M-A-T-E-R-N-O-W. Please make sure to check our website at imatternow.com. Again, I-M-A-T-E-R-N-O-W.com. And join iMatterNow's Facebook page. Follow us for future events and additional resources. Every day presents an opportunity to engage in self-care. And remember that it is not selfish to take care of your well-being. It is necessary. 
So take care and connect with you on the next Attorney Heart episode.